and matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there, and welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. I'm Dr. Peter Sacco, and welcome to another great and wonderful show. As with me always is my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. How are you, Todd? I'm doing great, and I have to say this publicly. You've, you've been hitting them out of the park the last few weeks. I mean, we always do a good show, but the guests that you've been getting on and how open they are about sharing their experiences, and, and they just... Uh, a great radio presence. It's been uh, been a, an honor and a privilege to be working on these shows with you. Oh, and it's always a privilege having you on top because you got great questions for our guests, and apparently the questions are really good because they're stimulating a lot of conversations after our shows. It's like got a lot of info coming my way on Facebook and also people posting on Twitter. So if you've got that information, folks, questions, always send them in. Right, Todd. Absolutely, yeah. We um, we do this for you. We don't do it just for to hear us hear us talk every week. We want to uh, be able to share information with you and and help improve your lives in a in a small way if we can. And as we were talking about before we started the show, I believe so. And folks, don't quote me on this, but I believe we're the only uh, mental health radio show in all of Canada. Who knows how many there are in North America, for that matter. And so with that said, we're excited to bring this information to each and every week, especially with just over a week away. It is Mental Health Awareness Month uh, throughout May. So if if we're the only, does that mean we're the number one rated mental health show in Canada? I think it does. <laughs> it must make us that way. And that's actually a pretty damn good feeling, unless somebody's going to write into us and then really burst our bubble. Well, let them correct us if they may, you know, so we're number two. It's tough being number two, but <laughs> no, this Mental Health Month is coming up. Yes, we got some terrific guests for that as well. And an interesting guest today, not exactly in my wheelhouse of speciality, but I'm uh, I'm intrigued. Absolutely. And in fact, I was—I had some eyebrows raised, uh, ironically, this morning when I was at Starbucks getting my tea, my pre-show tea. Mm -hmm. And somebody goes, oh, so, so Doc, who do you got on your show today? And I said, interestingly, see if you can wrap your mind around this, a midwife. And so we got into a what? What the heck is a midwife? And for those that really don't know what a, a midwife is... Um, it's a profession that is recognized as a legal and regulated profession in some Canadian provinces and territories, but while in others, it's not. And so basically, this is the ability to have a baby out of the hospital, and in many cases, in your own home. And there are so many uh, people these I mean, let's look back, you know, 40, 50 years ago, um, actually a little bit longer. My dad is now 74, I believe, and uh, his mom gave birth to 16 kids on a farm. So there, that, there was no such thing as natural childbirth. It was childbirth. You know, you were on the farm. One minute you were bailing hay. The next minute you were having a child. And then, you know, you'd recover for a couple of hours and you'd go and make dinner for your family. I'm sure it was vastly different. And then we got into this whole culture about having babies in a sterile place like the hospital with doctors and nurses. And, and there's a, a whole vast part of the population that are re-embracing that natural childbirth 
by having you know a midwife or or uh, there's other names for them as well to have the baby at home yeah it really is quite um the eye as i said the eyebrow razor because some people go well is that healthy um not only physically but here's where the key point comes in psychologically uh, what can it do? And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring our tremendous guests. I, I mean, we are absolutely blessed to have um, Patricia Harmon on our show. She is a USA best-selling author um, of the her original book, I believe, was called The Midwife of Hope River. And she's got a follow-up great book called The Reluctant Midwife. And part of this is, is looking at, because some people have brought this up, Todd, does it do any potential physiological damage to the child what if the child the baby that is goes into complications when it's being delivered then what do you do rush to the hospital because you don't have a real doctor on hand and also psychologically uh, if it's delivered wrong can it cause any sort of brain damage which could then lead to a plethora of uh, you know mental health and psychological problems down the road but also interestingly you're doing this birthing in your own home does it create some sort of apprehension or fear that, hey, look, over the bathroom or the living room, you know, you're the guy, the father, and wow, I was in there. That's where my kid was delivered in that bathtub there or, you know, on the dining room table. And so, you know, we want Patricia to kind of shed some of the myths and really give the realities of this. Oh, yeah. There's there's a lot of guys I know, even in my family, hi, guys, that they just can't stand childbirth. I mean, they can't be in there. They don't want to know. They're the stereotypical 50s father who's smoking a cigar out in the arrival area, you know, you know, looking through the glass, waiting for the baby to show up under glass. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people in my family that are like that. And there's guys like me who are right in there and are okay with everything that goes on. But I could understand, you know, uh, you know, oh, my goodness, you know, we had that baby in the in the bathroom. And can I ever use that bathroom again? I don't know. But yeah, hopefully she'll dispel some of the uh, the myths surrounding it. It's absolutely interesting. And with that said, I've never uh, been a father myself. You know, um, I don't qualify this, at least not that I know of at this point. <laughs> yeah. And now here I'm going to have all these love trials. Oh, the 70s, up were, on, yeah. 70s were good to you, were they, Dr. Sacco? <laughs> the 70s. T- <laughs> Actually, I'm a, a lot younger than that. Oh, uh, well, there you go. So, yeah, I'm going to have a love child show up on my doorstep, maybe many of them after today's show. But let me ask you this. Your dad, were you, did you cut the umbilical cord? I actually did, yes. I did. I was, I was one of those things I thought I couldn't do. Um, you know, I thought, you know, I might be that guy that says he's going to be okay, and then he faints. And actually, for both the uh, three births that I witnessed, I was okay. So, yeah, this sucked it up and stood strong. And interestingly, you know, they say that that is one of the most amazing things, especially, you know, for the father, because he can actually see what is going on, because um, the mother really can't. She's got her, you know, her mind preoccupied with pain, yeah. so to speak. So you basically, for all intents and purposes, you've got a ringside view of what's going on. And, you know, with that said, there are stories of men, fathers being psychologically traumatized by witnessing this event that they don't want to have sex with their wives after ever again. And it is a psychological phenomenon that's happening. Um, so with that said, some mothers during birth will, will tell the father, um, I don't want you down there. I don't want you to see what's down there. And just because of that reason, I, wa- I don't want you to see me as a vulnerable person that way. Or mm-hmm. even, you know, and I'm not trying to be facetious here, grossed out, you know, by seeing, you know, the amniotic fluids, the blood and all that stuff, because some guys, 
as you said, Todd, pass out. Yeah, yeah, you know, I can understand that. Um, I don't know what to say to it other than, you know, some people are, are just stronger that way or more prepared for it. And, and I have heard that phenomenon, which is a very real one, where it's, it's different afterwards. They just go, well, geez, that's, you know, where kids come from. And uh, I don't know. Um, it's, um, it's a real <clears throat> phenomenon. I don't know how much weight we can attach to it, but it is real. Yeah, and also, <laughs> I've heard stories, a friend of mine uh, talked about this uh, being at the other end of the delivery where his hand was literally almost crushed by her hand from, you know, the contractions and the pain. So each time she had a contraction, he did because she was squeezing the hell out of his hand, almost breaking the, you know, the small bones in his hand. Yeah, no, I, I've heard that too, or uh, where um, women have said, I hate you, it's all your fault, and, you know, it's just, it's a lot of pain. From what I understand, it's more painful than feeling a bone break. So I've, I've never been pregnant or delivered a baby or had a bone break. So I wouldn't know, but I have it on good authority that the pain threshold is as painful as breaking a bone. Must be uh, something that, you know, only a woman can really attest to if she's given birth. And so with that said, when we return, we're going to have our tremendous guest, Patricia Harmon, U.S. best-selling author. Stay tuned. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio at talk-radio.ca. The music you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Matters of the mind, where everything on your mind matters to each and every week. And we're doing things a little differently today in terms of our subject matter, but it definitely ties into psychology and thought process, which would then mean mentality. And as we told you before we went to break, we had a tremendous uh, guest coming our way, and we've got her, finally, alas, Patricia Harmon, who is the author of The Midwife of Hope River, and the reluctant midwife. She's from West Virginia, but actually on Canadian soil right now to come and join us. Welcome to the show, Patricia. Nice to be with you. So, 
Um, you come up here, as you were telling us, to write, do your writing up here. So you are familiar with Canada quite a bit. And as we were talking before we went to the break, that midwifery in Canada is definitely and totally acceptable in many provinces and territories, but in some it's not. So let me ask you, I guess, is this the same in the United States as well too? You know, it is quite a bit the same. Each state is different, and of course we have 50 states, so there's 50 different laws about it. And it's a problem, I think, for people in the United States. I'm, I'm not sure it would be in Canada so much, but the rules are so different and the designations of types of midwives are so different that it's hard for the patients or the consumer, the healthcare consumer, to know who to go to. For example, I'm a nurse midwife, so I'm an RN with a master's degree. It would be like an advanced practice nurse, a nurse practitioner who can deliver babies in the hospital or at home, although most of us do go to the hospital. But there's another designation called a professional midwife, and they have some certification as well, but they're not medical professionals. They've never been to nursing school or medical school. They learn by apprenticeship. So they can be good, but you don't always know. And truthfully, in the United States, you could put up a sign and say you're a midwife, and lots of times you wouldn't be challenged, and you know you might have done three or four births. And I can't criticize those people because I actually started that way when we used to live down on communes, and um, basically we're back to the landers uh, in the 70s and 80s. So I actually started delivering babies like that, and, and later went back to school. But um, like in, in Ontario, I think uh, midwives are nurses, and they're very well accepted um, and part of the national health care system. Um, of course, we don't have that in um, the states, and so some insurance companies will cover midwives and some do not. So let's say I brought you in to speak to my students in a lecture hall right now, and I said, Patricia, uh, tell us a little bit about your career. What are the I guess your job description, what will, what qualifies somebody to be a midwife and what would the duties entail? Well, a nurse midwife really can do uh, pretty much everything an OBGYN can do. Um, we don't do C-sections, so we don't do operations, we're not surgeons, and we don't do forceps deliveries, but everything else would be just like if you wanted to go to a regular woman's doctor. We can do pap tests, we can take care of people with infections. Uh, we do prenatal care, we do postpartum care, and we also deliver the babies. Um, the one thing about uh, being a midwife is because we don't do surgery, we get really good at getting babies out the normal way. So most people would find a C-section rate much lower. I don't know what it is in Canada, but like in the United States, the C-section rate is one out of three, which is way too high. The human race would never have uh, uh, succeeded if if childbirth went so badly for so many people. Um, so, you know, there the are other qualifications, I think, though, and, and these kind of fit in with your, your topic about the mind. I think the kind of person that chooses to be a midwife has to be rather courageous. And <clears throat> you stand between life and death, really, for the mother and the baby. And, of course, in the old days, it was, it was much worse. Um, often women um, weren't trained. Uh, became midwives just by being chosen by the community if they'd had a few babies. But there's a lot of people who think, 
Oh, boy, that would be so neat just to deliver a baby. Of course, there's also people like in my, my new book, The Reluctant Midwife, who just aren't so enamored of the whole idea. <laughs> but there are a lot of, say, nurses who think, oh, that would be great. But when it comes down to taking the responsibility, it's just a step too far. They'd rather be there for the delivery but not have to be the one that decides on courses of action. And does that give you a little bit of an idea? Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh -huh. I found that... Um, when I look back at my, you know, parental history, my dad was one of 16 that grew up in a farming community in Ontario and, you know, probably midwifery was, a, was a bit more common than it was, um, you know, there were women that just gave birth on the farm. And then, like I said to Dr. Sackle before we started the show, two hours later, they were up and they were cooking dinner for the family. It's just the way that it went. Um, and I find that now it's it's gaining or regaining popularity again. And I think what you mentioned was critical. You're standing up for the mother. You're also supporting them. But you're also being a little bit more involved than a typical OBGYN would be where you have a, you know, maybe you have a weekly meeting with them. Maybe you meet them every month and, you know, they measure the baby. You talk a bit and off you go. Whereas a midwife, as you said, postpartum, um, there's there's a lot more intermingling and in, in a relationship that's that's uh, created, I believe. I think you're right. You know, my husband is an OBGYN, and he's a wonderful OBGYN, and he believes, like I do, that most people should be able to deliver uh, normally, uh, naturally, not necessarily without medicine, but, you know, through the usual course. Um, but he's not going to stay with you for the birth. Right. And he doesn't spend as much time at the prenatal visits. And it's not because he doesn't like people or he's not, not because he's not a warm and, and comforting person. It's just that he's a doc right. and he's a surgeon and that's what he likes doing the most. And he would leave the back rubbing to me, and which is fine with me because I don't have any interest in surgery. So you're, you're absolutely right. You do form a bond with people. Now, I've found, like when I worked in university settings and big hospitals, that I can come into a room of a patient that I've never met before and form a pretty good bond just by sitting on the edge of the bed and holding her hand. But... That's not the way we mostly do it. Mostly, it's like what you said. You you spend maybe a half an hour a week with the patient. Right. Um, so you really do get to know her, and we try to include the families, um, the fathers of the babies, sometimes the kids or the grandparents. And that's what birth should be, I think. It should be a family event. And I think it can be a transformative event for everyone, um, certainly for the mother, because she has to do something very strong. And afterwards... She should feel stronger. When we take women's power away from them at birth, they don't have that opportunity to make that transition. Um, and for the father, too, you know, just seeing the power of his woman pushing that baby out, mm -hmm. I mean, that's amazing. So, uh, you know, I've had kids at the delivery, and I'm not sure my kids are at my deliveries. I'm not sure how transformative that is. I think it's interesting to them. Um, uh, you know, like my my little boy said, he said, it was like you were fighting for your life, only it wasn't your life. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And it, I don't know how much that changed his life, but I thought, God, that is so true. Out of, out of the mouths of babes, you know. 
I like your comment, though, about taking the power away, which would lead me to believe that a C-section takes that power away. And I think in my limited, complicated obstetrical history, I've noted that it really varies by doctor, not necessarily geographic area, about what they allow the women to do. I've had some women in labor that I've heard of for 24 to 36 hours before they say, okay, I think we've had enough. Let's let's do the the C-section. And I've had others say, oh, my goodness, two hours? You're still in labor? I think it's time that we do a C-section. And it's just like, whoa, wait a second. You know, I think it's really up to the woman and her doctor and, and perhaps the midwife to determine what the best course of action is. But but you're right. It, it, if you if if you take the C-section way, I think like you are hinting, if that's what I'm hearing, you're taking the power of the birth away about rising up to that challenge, delivering the baby and then basking in that accomplishment. Well, I think that that's right. It's not that C-sections are always bad. They save lives and there's a place for them. But in my opinion, it should be like one out of 10, not one out of three. Right. Like when I had my babies, that that was the C-section rate was about 10%. Interestingly, outcomes for babies have not improved that much, even though the C-section rate has gone way up. Um, There's some research, and I think it's very interesting, that um, uh, a high number of C-sections happen around 5 or 6 in the evening. Now, why would that be? (laughs) It's closing time. Doctor is hungry. He wants to go home to his family (laughs) or her family. Um, You know, really, I can't say all C-sections are bad, but... And and what we want, I think, is no matter what, whether it turns out to be a C-section or a vaginal delivery, is for the woman to feel good about it, to feel she did her very best. And what happens when we get too medical and, and, you know, doctors and nurses and, you know, high risk and we're swarming around her, she becomes smaller and smaller in the picture. And pretty soon all the decisions are made by somebody else. So... That's what I mean by giving power to women, and I think you you said it. It's it's a it's something you have to work together as a team for, and not just tell somebody, okay, C-section time now. And one thing I've seen that I think is is scary is is an approach that some people take in obstetrics, and I would say physicians more than midwives. Although you know we're not all midwives aren't from the same mold, but is an approach where. The woman is made to feel in some way that she's failed, and that's a bad, that's a bad yeah. thing. We want people to feel they did their very best. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? It's, it's a lifetime uh, operation, so to speak. And when I use the term operation, not as a, it is basically a medical operation for all intents and purposes. So with that said, Patricia, I, I had a couple of folks that emailed me um, and wanted me to ask you, first, I guess, and foremost is, in the house, in the individual's house, where do you usually deliver the child? And then I guess the follow-up question to that would be, is what happens if there are sudden complications where the individual does need um, a doctor, like a medical doctor where, where this becomes an emergency situation? Um, do you have the facilities to immediate, immediately treat the, the baby? Or do you bring, you know, do you rush the child to emergency? That was, uh, uh, Joyce had asked that. The first question was, where do you usually deliver? Um, You know, there's a wide variation. I mean, you can go on YouTube and see pictures of people having, uh, videos of people having babies in a water bath in a Mm -hmm. tub that they rent. So you could set that up in your living room if you wanted to. I would say most births at home happen in the bedroom, not always in the bed. 
I mean, sometimes people prefer to squat or, uh, you know, get on their hands and knees. Uh, there's just different ways people feel more comfortable and, and, and more powerful uh, and push better. It's not always laying down, and I think most people realize that by now. Um, the other question um, about an emergency, you know, I think well-trained midwives would have oxygen with them, possibly would have an IV set up, uh, would have medicine for hemorrhage. Um, so there's a lot you can do at home. At the same time, you would be calling 911 and getting uh, the, uh, the emergency squad there. I think there is some risk, and, and people, you know, you have to say that. There's risk in the hospital and there's risk at home. My philosophy is that people should have the baby where they feel most secure. If they feel secure with a high-risk doctor, maybe they've had trouble getting pregnant. Maybe they're now 35. They don't know how many babies they'll even be able to have. They should go there and they will do their best job when they feel most secure. There are other people who are terribly afraid of hospitals and I'm kind of one of those. I mean, with all the infections you can get in a hospital, I want to spend as little time as possible there. I'm, I'm in and out if I have to go at all. Um, so I would be one who would choose to have a baby at home, and I did. I had two babies at home. So let me ask you this, Patricia. Um, what are your thoughts on birthing in swimming pools or in water, and have you actually done it, um, delivered a child that way? I have. Um, I am, this sounds funny maybe to you guys coming from a midwife, but I kind of have this feeling that, you know, if we were supposed to have our babies in the water, we would be dolphins. <laughs> but I would have, I have no problem in doing it, and if that's what women want. And there is something very comforting about the water. Um, I use water a lot for pain relief in the shower or in the tub. Usually I get people out to have the baby. But when you watch these videos, and I'm not saying it, they'll probably get a lot of hits on their videos now, but um, apparently it's, it's very comforting. I mean, I've, I don't do it routinely, but I have done several. Um, like I say, the tub or the shower, it's, it's just amazing what kind of pain relief you can get from water. And um, so, you know, the, the trick is you don't, you know, when people first started doing water births, and this is probably 10 or 20 years ago, they would let the baby kind of float around in there. It was mm -hmm. still attached to the cord. And, and there were some babies that didn't make it. They left them in too long. And my way of doing it would be to get the head out of the water and get the baby breathing. And maybe then you could let them float around in the water. Um, there used to be something called the Le Boyer bath where this doctor in France, um, he delivered babies in the normal way. And then he would take them and very gently put them in some nice warm water. and you could see the baby's little eyes opened and they just felt comfortable there because that's where they've been for nine months was in the water. It's a heck of a transition. I mean, to a dark, warm, um, you know, relatively moist place to all of a sudden be brought out where it's very loud, very bright, typically. I mean, a, a lot of birthing suites now, the, the lights are dimmed and, you know, the parents bring in music and um, create a somewhat um, quieter environment for the child to be born in, but it's still a big change. And I think the water birth um, might help transition the child into into the new environment. But I, I wanted to touch upon something else. Um, we've got about four minutes left before we go to break. And I think that as a midwife, do you see yourself, and I don't want to paint you in a corner here, as, a, as an amateur psychologist, because you get to see 
the woman more than the OBGYN and, and you're sort of assessing how they're doing. And I think it's very important to our listeners when we're talking about matters of the mind that I see this relationship, like as I mentioned earlier, about being more multifaceted than just someone who's concerned about the birth. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I, I wouldn't call myself an amateur psychiatrist <laughs> or a psychologist, but the fact is you, you are tuned in in that way. Um, the second book that I wrote, no, actually it was my first book, is a memoir called The Blue Cotton Gown, which is about the courage of ordinary women and the stories that they tell me in the exam room. And I do become like an amateur psychologist and sometimes a bit over my head. And I do have a lot of counselor friends, and I'm, I always think they'd probably be shaking their head when they read that book, thinking, oh, Patsy, are you really sure you want to go there? But I do think it's part of our job, and, and especially in terms of anxieties and fears, and even sometimes anger, you know, if there's problems in the family, all those things can impact a person's health and their birth. And I see that as part of my job, to listen to patients and sometimes to help them find resources. I can't be their counselor, although some would like me to be, but I just I don't have that kind of time mm. to spend with them. But to tune into that and to give them comfort and understanding and acceptance, I think is really important. Before we had brought you on, Patricia, we were talking about, and Todd actually is a dad, and he did cut his kid's umbilical cord while he was in the delivery room. So is it the same with midwifery where the husband or the father of the child is present, and do you let him cut the umbilical cord? Oh, sure. Yeah, I've even let them uh, help deliver the baby. I mean, my hands are right there on top of their hands, but some fathers really like that idea. I mean, it's exciting for them. My husband did that. The midwife let him help deliver the baby, and then later he became an OBGYN. But um, some some dads wouldn't want to do that, and sometimes their hands are shaking, and you have to kind of help them. But it's sort of a little rite of passage, I guess, a little ceremony. Um, and I think it's really important you know, when I talk to families about midwifery is even though we're there rubbing the lady's back and all that kind of stuff, we don't take the place of the father, and we're there for both of them. And sometimes it can be overwhelming to dads. They're like, oh, God, she's, she's kind of losing it here. What am I supposed to do now? <laughs> and, and that's part of my job is to say, okay, let's do this. Let's get her in the shower here. And sometimes the guys will even bring a swimming suit, and they'll get in the shower with her and rub her back or different things like that. Um, so um, we're there for both both parents, the mother and the father. Excellent, excellent. We have to go to a commercial break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to have more with uh, Patricia, and she's going to talk about midwifery as well as her books. Stay tuned. And we may share some personal experiences here. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio on your internet radio at talk-radio.ca. We'll be right back. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 
26 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything in your mind matters to us each and every week and what's mattering on your minds and our minds right at this moment is midwifery and home deliveries of babies which is kind of really cool because we got an awesome guest patricia Harmon, who is a best-selling u.s author of the midwife of hope river and her uh, follow-up the reluctant midwife so patricia before we went to break we were talking about exactly kind of what goes on when a child is being delivered within somebody's house uh, and Todd threw it out there. So you're kind of like a psychologist slash therapist as well, too. So we were talking about this before the show started today, um, about fathers being there and then being traumatized um, by what they're witnessing that they weren't, uh, you know, expecting. They were expecting it, but wow, when it was brought to them in live living color in three dimensions, some of them passed out, got sick, or they basically developed post-traumatic stress disorder where they were no longer able to have sexual relations or wanted to with their, you know, the mother or the child after. How common is this? In my experience, that's pretty rare, but that's because I take a lot of time with the fathers. I, would, I could see that could totally be true. I mean, one of the reasons I went into midwifery was because as a nurse, I saw some births like that, you know, where things just happened fast, nothing was explained to the father, it was out of control. Um, you could, I could see how that could lead to post-traumatic stress. I have not seen that because I take really good care of my, 
my patients, both the father and the mother. But I, I think you have a good point. Um, I don't know that there's much. How how would we prevent that? And I guess I would say people need to be careful about choosing their care provider. And one of the things that's a little sad is that I think especially young parents, maybe who have never been through childbirth before, don't do much research on picking a provider. They go to who their sis went to or who their coworker went to. And and I really encourage people, you know, to talk with their physician or their midwife a lot before we get to the birth. And even if they're not feeling comfortable, they're not feeling reassured, they don't feel like this is a calm person who's going to give them some time, then they need to transfer. That is usually possible. Sometimes people feel they're stuck. They've got somebody they don't feel quite comfortable with, but now who can they go to? And, and I really encourage people that it's so important to feel comfortable with your provider. The actual event is unpredictable. You know, 90%, if we kept our hands out of things, women could deliver easily. Maybe not easily, but they could deliver normally. Um, 10%, there will be some complications, and I don't know how to protect the father or the mother from trauma except by picking the very best place to have your baby with the very best person. Um, They should have, like, an agency or something that helps you do this. Um, But I just really encourage people to spend the time to to find somebody they really feel good about. Afterwards, I guess we turn it over to people like you, Peter. Um, And have you seen this? Have you seen some fathers that had post-traumatic stress after deliveries? I have not personally, but I've heard through the grapevine and colleagues bring it up. And actually, interestingly, I've heard it right from the former wives or partners, the women themselves who gave the birth, that have told me, uh, and some of them were still married, and basically telling me, hey, he will not have sex with me or touch me. Uh-huh. because. Because now I am, you know, he's, I'm the mother of his kid. I'm a baby maker and no longer viewed as this sensual, sexy partner. Um, and since he saw it, it's very different. And in fact, myself and Dr. Deborah Leno, she's a sex therapist. We wrote a book called The Madonna Complex, which is gets into everything in terms of porn addictions, sex addictions. And the flip side of it is husbands who are abstinent with their wives after the woman has had the baby and therefore he goes out and he chooses the services of a call girl, a prostitute or a mistress because he can no longer touch the mother of his child because in some ways she's he witnessed it and she became dirty or it's crazy or real sick. These are the terms that, you know, these guys have used in the past. So yeah, I have I have heard it. Have not spoken to the guy, an individual man per se directly who has said it, but I have definitely spoken to the women that have given birth and said, "Hey, my guy won't touch me anymore." Well, and I think it's important that you talk about these things. They might be quite rare, but there is somebody out there listening who's going to go, "Oh, that's what's going on. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it." And it actually might make them feel better just to know they're not the only person and to maybe try to get treatment for that as a couple. Um, it probably is, is rather rare, but again, people don't always tell us as their women's health care providers everything. No. I mean, I talk to people a lot about sex, and, and I think that I, you know, people are honest with me, but I don't know that. You know, 
um, maybe they're ashamed or embarrassed or they think it's their fault, you know, that their husbands don't like them anymore. Um, but that would, I don't know if anyone's done research on that, but that's a really interesting topic. I would think it's, it's, um, it's highly likely that the relationship changes somewhat because the, the, the dad does see the mom as a mom now as more than just a life partner or, or you know, someone that they have sex with. And it could be construed that, oh, you know, I can't put those demands on my wife anymore because she's so busy. She's so tired. Um, but one of the interesting things that I see from your relationship with the couple as a midwife and from what I've heard over the years about people considering midwives is there are some men who view it not as a jealous relationship, but I think they sort of feel like part of their role is being usurped. Um, part of um, the wife needing them or the mother needing them is being usurped by this third person who sort of swoops in and says, okay, I'm in control. I'm taking charge here. And dad, you do this and I'm going to do the rest for mom. And I think that's a, a real concern for some men too. And I'd love you to, to speak to that about how it really doesn't diminish the role of the, the potential father. Well, you know, in, in midwifery, there's an old saying about sitting on your hands, and some midwives actually bring knitting and different things like that to a birth, probably to keep them from jumping up and doing things all the time. But, you know, and sitting on your hands is maybe a way to say, don't do what you just described. Don't be midwife superwoman. Um, here I am with my little cape taking everything over. Um, you go sit over there and hold her hand, and I'll do everything else. I mean, I think the best of midwifery would be to pay attention and to watch and only help when you think things aren't going well. And like I said, sometimes it is overwhelming. And, and Todd, you've had babies, so you've seen, you know, you come to a point where she's kind of losing it and, and are you supposed to do something or is this normal? And that's what you have the midwife there for is to help you to say, yeah, you can tell she's getting close to deliver. See how she's grunting or, or see how she's starting to sweat now? This is all normal stuff, and here's what we can do to help her. So I think, you know, the best of midwifery is when you're taking care of both people, um, but not overtaking care of them, not taking over, you know, like you said. I think, yeah, I think that's a real benefit that you bring to it is you're supporting both partners. Obviously, you're supporting one more than the other because there's more direct intervention. But I think guys need to look at it as um, a support, someone that's been there and done it before and that can guide the process and comfort you rather than someone that's trying to take your power away or your position and just say, I'm here to help both of you. Well, and it's interesting, you know, you said we'd talk a little bit about my books, and I'm thinking about the first one, The Midwife of Hope River. It's set in the 1930s, and uh, it's a midwife who is not very experienced. Um, she's kind of a radical from Chicago and Pittsburgh, ends up down in West Virginia on the run. But in those days, I mean, you, nowadays we think of the midwife as kind of the cutting edge on some of these things, but in those days, the midwife was just a lady who came to your house. The childbirth methods weren't all that different. Women were in bed. Um, you know, uh, they, they didn't get them up and walk or get in the shower. The fathers weren't encouraged to be there. In fact, they pretty much didn't want to be. And um, part of the, the, the plot of this book is that the midwife gradually gets to see how men can be useful. And there's one, one story in there where there's these Amish people having a baby, and um, 
it's a novel, so it's not like a short story, but it's part of the book, um, where uh, the midwife is sort of stuck on what to do. And while she's uh, trying to figure out what to do next, um, she says, where's the father? And they said, oh, it's, this is a woman's thing. Uh, he's out in the barn or somewhere. Uh, he can't be here. And she says, no, no, I think we need the male vigor. And, I, and that always cracked me up because I could just imagine myself saying something like that in the old days, the male vigor. But there is something about the importance of men at childbirth, you know, that, that even though maybe it is scary, um, they bring so much, you know, they, they just bring so much to help the woman. And um, that's why I really encourage it. You know, like when our parents had babies, they weren't there, and the fathers were, like, scared to death, chain-smoking in some little uh, <laughs> uh, room, you know, where the fathers waited. Um, but, you know, it's not for everybody, and, and I wouldn't ever want someone to feel bad that, you know, they didn't go to the birth because they were too scared. And that probably would be more traumatic, like you said, Peter, uh, if someone was coerced into going to a birth and, and just wasn't comfortable. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> it's almost like getting, you know, whoa, what did I get myself invited to here? <laughs> That's kind of <laughs> really? what, you know, what some guys must be thinking after the fact. But with that said, okay, you have your two books, The Reluctant Midwife and The Midwife of Hope River. How hard is it then, because basically art imitates life. So obviously you are writing about um, deliveries that you've been a part of. So do you find that you're kind of on a razor's edge here where you're thinking, okay, I'm writing these books, these are definitely fiction, but I'm incorporating nonfiction, my own experiences into these books, Patricia, where I've got to be really careful because one of my patients might pick up this book down the road and go, oh my God, she's writing about me. Do you find that there's that fine line you got to be careful with? You know, it was much, much finer line in my two memoirs, The Blue Cotton Gown and Arms Wide Open, because they were written current time and they did include patients and their stories that they told me and the experiences that we had together. Um, and in those cases, I always let the patients read their own parts of the book, tell them the, the basic premise of the book. And uh, what I would say would be, you're more important to me than the book. If you don't want to be in here, I'll take it out. Of course, they were all deeply disguised names, and if you were Caucasian, I'd probably make you Chinese or something like that. Um, so the memoirs are harder. The story, because it's set in the 1930s, I think is a little easier. Um, there probably are some people, and sometimes I'll even kid with my patients, so they'll tell me some life event that happened to them, and I'll go, oh, that is so good. I'm going to put that in a book someday. Um, so we all just laugh, you know, and, and I say, I'll give you a free copy. Uh, of course, I, uh, but if it's in the 1930s, you don't have to worry too much that people are going to catch on. One thing that people like about my books, there's a lot of stuff going on about midwifery now. Uh, the TV show called The Midwife uh, has brought a lot of attention. It's a BBC uh, series. Um, it's brought a lot of attention to midwifery and, and therefore more books about, even fiction books about it. But one thing people like about my books is that I've actually been there and they can tell um, just the detail and things like that, you know, that, that talk about the smells of birth and different things like that. They, they know that I'm a midwife and, and it shows uh, in the writing. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. Oh, absolutely. Very good. Um, so, did you always want to be a, an author, Patricia? Um, you know, 
as you were delivering babies, at some point did you just say, hey, um, I want to write about this. This be a great story because it's something that's really kept, for all intents and purposes, a secret. And in, in many respects, because it was in Canada for a long time, parts of Canada, and it still is in parts of states, this is taboo. People just do not deliver babies at home. So did you, is this a way, I guess, basically, you became a spokesperson for midwifery? You know, I didn't plan that, and I never thought to myself, I want to be an author. I always wrote and kept journals, and writing was always easy for me. Uh, my husband, on the other hand, labors over every sentence. I mean, it has to be perfect, and he can't go on to the next paragraph until he's got that one done. I just write like I'm telling a story, and then I go back and I make it beautiful. Um, so, you know, it wasn't until I went through menopause, and this always makes me laugh, uh, that I had time to write. My kids were gone, um, and I couldn't sleep at night. And so I would get up and I would start writing the stories of people that I met that day. And some of them were very powerful to me. And, and I'm sure you guys can imagine, you know, in the privacy of the exam room, some of the things that people might tell you about their family, about themselves, about the most intimate things. And I, I work in a busy office and, you know, I couldn't leave the office and just the exam room and go, oh my God, you should, I should, oh, I can't tell you what I just heard. And my husband, I don't know if this sounds really sexist, guys, but he's, I mean, maybe not because you guys are therapists and you're into this, but my husband's the kind of guy, he cares about people, but what he wants to know is the bottom line. He doesn't want to know the details. Like women, we're like, then what happened? Oh, my God, you've got to be kidding. Really? I mean, people say we're gossips, but really we're learning from each other is what we're doing. But my husband, he just wants to know, is there something we need to do, and is she going to be okay? Yeah. That's what he wants to know. Tell me what I need to do. Yeah, and so I, I would come home and just be full of these stories, and that's how I started writing, and my first book did well, and then after two memoirs, I thought, you know, I'm kind of milking my own life here. I think I want to try fiction, uh, but it, a lot of it is, uh, like you said, uh, experiential. It's things that I have seen, witnessed at birth, or witnessed in human relations that I bring to my to my books and I think it they're, they're absolutely fabulous Patricia um, and and really fabulous and I believe that so is because you write very metaphorically in in many regards uh, even though it's fiction people and, and this is you know more so women because women more women are going to read these books are going to kind of read between the lines and read the line straight out. So get both the con, you know, the connotative as well as the denotative meaning of what you're saying. And I think it, it's a great way for them. It empowers them. It gives them a sense of hey, uh, it's a celebration. I, I guess I'll put it this way: it's a celebration of womanhood. The fact that you know mothers are great. Uh, giving birth is a great and probably could be once in a lifetime or for those blessed couple of a lifetime experiences which really celebrates their humanity on this earth well that's very nice i i'm glad you got that and you know you asked before are these books for women or for men or for everybody i would say you're right mostly women read my books if a guy reads my books, it's because it's historical fiction and they're interested in the 1930s. Because there's a lot more about, uh, you know, life in the Great Depression and that kind of thing. It's not all birth and babies. Or, so he's either interested in historical fiction, he likes good literature, or he sees this book sitting around 
in his house. His wife won't put it down. And he's going, what are you reading? And, oh, well, it's just this great book. And then the men, men like it, too. And it's interesting to me that as I go on as an author, in each book, the men get stronger characters. Uh, I'm working on one now set in Canada on an island much like Pelee Island, which is where I'm now. I am now uh, speaking from Pelee Island. But in this book, I, I find, you know, there's several men characters that are very prominent. And in the last one, the midwife of Hope River, uh, there's a physician who's a man and is a damaged character. Something bad has happened to him. We don't know what at the beginning. But he's basically a vegetable, won't talk, can't practice medicine anymore. And it's also his story. So the characters aren't all women, you know. There's a lot of guys, and some flawed and some really strong, but that's life. And that's true for both women and men, that we have our weaknesses, but we also have our strengths. And I think what I want to get from the books, what I want to give to people is hope and, and courage. And that's kind of something that ties all four books together. And definitely hope encourages what you give, Patricia. Thank you so, so much for being a guest on our show. We've run out of time. And for those that want to learn more about you and get your books, what is the best place they can do this? Well, I have a Facebook page. It's Patricia Harmon, an author. There's probably a lot of Patricia Harmons. And I have a website, uh, which is Patricia Harmon, and it's spelled H-A-R-M-A-N.com. And there's a place on there where you can contact me. I do do book clubs, and of course I'm not going to be flying up to Canada to do book clubs, but we can Skype and we can do speaker phones if people like to do that kind of thing. It's lots of fun. So I hope people will contact me. I, I enjoy talking to them. But you did say, Patricia, you are in Peely Island. Anybody listening, they can find you on Peely Island while they you are there. They can, right at this minute. <laughs> but, you know, one of the great things about riding here is I don't have an Internet connection. The island is so small, I have to go to the other side to get Internet on my cell. But that's great for riding, because okay. then you don't spend a lot of time yeah. moving around. So for anybody listening, get a hold of Todd Miller, and he will take you out there on his boat. <laughs> if okay. I, if I had good. a boat, I've got an old bathtub that I've converted <laughs> from my uh -huh. last last pregnancy. Um, for any of you listening, you can go to listenuptalkradio.talk-radio.ca. Check our blog post today. We'll have links to uh, Amazon where you can get the books, of course, Patricia's Facebook and her page. And the last thing I'd like to close with is, as I mentioned this to Dr. Sacco, I've heard that giving birth is like more painful to a woman than breaking a bone. So if it were up to men to have babies, the population would be pretty low, I'm thinking. Women are way stronger. Do you agree? Um, I think we're both strong in different ways. Um, no, I would not say women are stronger. And that's one of the themes of my new book is about the courage of men. Um, but it's different. It's real different. Okay, so we're going to get redeemed in the next book, Dr. Sackle. We'll have to read it. <laughs> Good deal. Stay tuned. More Matters of the Mind coming up after the break on talk-radio.com.
hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us. And today, the matter of the mind was midwifery and childbirthing. And definitely, I can say, as a guy who has never fathered a child, I learned a lot. As a guy who's fathered more than I'd (laughs) care to acknowledge publicly, man, I learned a lot as well. And I, I think it demystified for me, as someone who's never used a midwife, it demystified um, why you'd want to use one and the benefits of it. And, and as I really tried to draw out of uh, Patricia was for those guys that are afraid of using one for various reasons, nothing to fear. I mean, it's a great reason to have someone like Patricia on your side. That's a coach that can take shoulder some of the responsibility and maybe provide you some gentle guidance as to what am I going to do here? What do I need to do? Am I supposed to be doing anything or am I supposed to be, you know, standing still? And I think that's really something that that a lot of people could use some help with during the the moment when there's so you're filled with panic you're filled with dread you're filled with confusion absolutely and i think she said you know the statistics kind of speak for themselves where and she believes that too many are having c-sections and going the alternative way or perhaps in her in her books are metaphorical and you know really good historical context so back in the day um there was a lot of home births and a lot of great connections between mother and child and also the quote-unquote old-fashioned nuclear family. So with that said, I hope um, she's provided insight and she's provided alternatives for women thinking, hey, maybe, just maybe, I might opt to go that route. But I'm also thinking the flip side is I don't think there's, you know, or then again, maybe I might be wrong. Guy listeners out there are going, oh, yeah, sign me up for that. I want to have my kid at home. <laughs> Well, who knows? You know, that's that's kind of what we do. We like to present the information and let listeners decide for themselves. So hopefully they enjoyed it and got something out of it. And uh, you want to plug next week's show? We have an interesting guest. Yes, we are going to have a tremendous filmmaker um, who's going to talk about her journey, her mental health journey, and her work is being featured in major film festivals around the world. So definitely stay tuned to next week's show. Very cool. You can find us here uh, every Wednesday at 8 p.m. on talk-radio.ca. You can find us on Facebook, Listen Up Talk Radio. You can find Dr. Sacco at petersacco.com. You can find all his books and uh, links to the show. So we'll catch you right back here next Wednesday at 8 p.m. And, of course, you can find us on Stitcher Radio and iTunes Podcast. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Reach him on his website, petersacco.com. Or you can reach him through Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. We really thank you for listening. Reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio, on Twitter at at listenuptalk. We'll catch you next week. You don't need no pills. That man is not your man. And that's why I'm